this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Welcome to Foreign Invader. My name is Conrado Falco III and this is the podcast about the pop culture that is corrupting American life. Every episode we take a piece of culture that originated in not the United States of America and talk about its impact on our country and our lives. Let me start by thanking Jose Solis for coming on the show to talk about Kylie Minogue. We had a great conversation. You should check that episode if you haven't yet. Today, we are stretching the conceit of this show to the extreme. Animator Gendy Tartakovsky was born in Russia and emigrated to the U.S. when he was only seven years old. He's not what I would traditionally call a foreigner, but the place he holds in contemporary American animation makes him stand out as a bit of an outsider. Throughout his television career, working on shows like Dexter's Laboratory, The Powerpuff Girls, and most importantly, Samurai Jack, he has developed a unique style that makes him a genre onto himself. I've been a fan of his work since I was a kid, so I am really excited to talk about him, especially with such a great guest. He is a filmmaker, a great friend, and Idaho's favorite son. Please welcome the great Trevor Wallace. Hey, thanks, Conrado. Glad to be here. Glad that not enough people from Idaho listen to call me out on being the favorite son. <laughs> <laughs> to me, you are Idaho's favorite son. Exactly. I'm so happy that you're here. So. I have kind of spilled the beans on the first question that I ask every guest, but Trevor, where are you from? I am, uh, I say I'm from Idaho. I was originally born in a very small town called Ephrata in eastern Washington state, and then I moved to Boise, Idaho when I was in third grade. Mm -hmm. So basically you stayed in Idaho until you went to college, is that right? Yep. I stayed there all the way through high school, and then I went to college in Connecticut for four years, and then moved to New York City after that, and I've been East Coast ever since. All right. Well, you know that Idaho and Peru have something in common, potatoes. <laughs> Is that also the only thing anyone says to you when they hear about where you're from? <laughs> Not really, because a lot of people don't know that potatoes come from Peru or like from the Andes, that they originated there, and that the Inca were the first people to... Um, domesticate the the potatoes and grow them um because people you know they associate potatoes with ireland and, mm -hmm. and i guess with idaho as well idaho definitely has a, the fame because it's on all the packaging we kind of have branding i i always people always ask me if oh my gosh do you just like always eat potatoes all the time are there so many potatoes everywhere and like we're not actually the biggest producer. California has more land. They produce more potatoes. We just are famous <laughs> for the quality, I guess. But it's all about the branding. It is the branding because I couldn't he did a blind taste test. I couldn't tell you what an Idaho potato is or what it tastes like. But we definitely are known for it. And it's the only thing anyone on the East Coast knows my state for. Now, I will say it speaks to just how narrow and uh, American focused my education was in Idaho that it is literally a potato state <laughs> famous for, and I was never taught that potatoes came from Peru and that the ink is, I didn't know any of that thing, what you just said. So I need to do much more in-depth <laughs> potato research outside of my own state, because I guess we were pretty focused on just Idaho state history. So 
Great. So what are some stereotypes about Idaho mm. other than the potato? Or like, you know, how do the people of Idaho think of themselves? It's a very good question. I think it's in a moment of transition right now. And I can only really speak for Boise, Idaho, which is the capital city. Um, it's some describe it as a bit of a blue or liberal oasis in a very red conservative state. Doesn't mean that the city's politics are any less conservative than the rest of the state. It just means there's more people around that have a slightly more varied set of views. And you can meet people that are not going to directly conflict with you as quite as much. So I can speak for the city more than the whole state. But in Boise, there is a growth happening right now. A lot of um, new parts of the university are being built up, which is bringing in new people. There's art scenes developing. There's more food scenes developing. Different culture restaurants are finally opening. You can actually get Indian food in Boise now in a couple places, which was new when I went back to visit a few years ago. Um, but I will say that in that growth, a lot of people are, of course, as humans do, resenting it in different ways. There's a sense mm. that a lot of people are coming from California and moving to Idaho and ruining it because... <laughs> Um, it's a lot of what folks see as conservative Californians who just want to have the government off their backs and California is becoming more and more progressive oh, and they're fleeing to a state like Idaho where they can get more for their money and live more isolated lives. And that's shifting the culture and the politics of the state. And some people just don't like the growth because it's changed and it is a pretty conservative part of the country because it comes from the lone pioneers setting up their own town from scratch without help and doing things with their hand. That's the like the mythic tradition mm. we're told about our state, that it's a state of explorers and pioneers and settlers and that that was pretty recent. And so you have a lot of folks just kind of on principle resist change because they want it to stay the same. So it's a time of change right. and resisting that and kind of figuring out what that means for the folks living there now. Um, I don't know how much that was a stereotype more than just background. I guess you need, in terms of how they see themselves, I think we see ourselves as a pretty free, do whatever you want kind of people. There's a lot of open space. There's a lot of land and hmm. you can kind of make your own way, I guess, is kind of what they, I think the idealized version of what Idahoans would say for themselves. Is there like a, a Idaho folk hero or, or a, a, you know, like a figure that looms large over Idaho history? I'm just picturing this yeah. as like the Simpsons, like Springfield, you yeah. know, like Jebediah <laughs> Springfield or something. In a way, yeah, there's, um, you're definitely, fourth grade for me was Idaho history year. And that's where we did all the state history. And Lewis and Clark, mm -hmm. the famous explorers oh, of course. that went, I see, you know about them. Yeah, I always wonder, folks, that are educated not out west who how much they know of that history um i, I know it through the simpsons actually oh, <laughs> there's really? an episode where uh, lenny and carl are like <laughs> lewis and clark and lisa is um perhaps problematically she plays uh saskatchewia i think saskatchewia or sakagawea is a more traditional pronunciation that i've been presented okay. but that was also presented to me by white folks so i don't want to claim that that's correct either but i know who you're talking about um, I think that that says enough right there. That says like that's maybe our biggest folk hero that even something as mainstream as The Simpsons can parody Lewis and Clark because it's that well known. But we were taught that like they were one of the first people to come through the state and like they were mm -hmm. the beginnings of all this industry. And it was we learned about all the different stops on the way. We had to read their journals and to have them talk about all the like 
their gross racist feelings toward the natives and like the oh, way God. they were you know sweating and stinking all the time and how horrible it was and it was a big part of of our history that year and then after that you get not individual humans like individual people in history but you get the Oregon Trail and the pioneers and the covered mm. wagons that came out and that mm -hmm. is the other kind of mythic part of Idaho history where there's a uh, path out by my parents' house in about a 10 minute walk. You can get to a piece of the Oregon Trail that is preserved as like a nature path, the exact spot that the mm. wagons went by as they went down the valley to get to yeah. the water. And so, yeah, those are the kind of two big mythic Idaho stories that, that I think form the backbone of how people see themselves. Okay, with all this in mind, what would you say was the most American thing about your childhood then? I was thinking about this question because I'm, of course, a fan of the show and have listened. I think I was thinking that there's I have a lot of relationships to very American, stereotypically American things like guns and the 4th of July and football. And those things, I think, are interesting just from being in that rural area. I have exposure to a lot of those things in different ways. But one of the things I think really strikes me as American, the type of American I was from, a more small town, small city rural part of the country is the assumption that you're going to leave at some point and the assumption mm. that there's a lot of baggage and assumptions that are made if you choose to stay um, because you know a lot of the folks that stay is because they had children young and so they raised a family early which has its onset of judgments or maybe you didn't get into a good enough college to leave so you stayed or maybe you didn't have mm. enough ambition to get a better job that took you out of this state that isn't as exciting as the west coast or the east coast so i think that's a common common thing for a lot of americans that kind of gets brushed off as the whole midwest or the entire middle of the country is this mm. one thing and i think we're so different but we do share this pressure that this is not a final destination for anybody no one is coming to idaho from elsewhere it's always you're here and you were born here or you are leaving to go make a big elsewhere and that feels very american to me i think core to a lot of different americans experience that weren't born in one of the big cities or on the on the coasts enter at your own peril past the vaulted door where impossible things may happen that the world never seen before in dexter's laboratory smartest boy you've ever seen but Didi blows his experiments to smithereens there is gloom and doom while things go boom in Texas love so Trevor Okay, so usually I, I, I make this joke of like, how does an all-American boy find out about this foreign thing? But in this case, both of those things are more ridiculous, ridiculous than usual. So Trevor, how does an actually all-American Idaho boy uh, find uh, Gandhi Tartakovsky? I think I actually, it kind of did come to me in like American boy finding a foreign influence way because to me, his shows, Dexter's Lab and Samurai Jack, those early shows that I watched as a kid, were playing a Cartoon Network. And for me, growing up in Idaho, there were four channels I was allowed to watch as a kid. One was PBS, of course. And then I had Nickelodeon, which was Channel 36. And that was like, you know, sometimes a little crass in the humor, but very kid-friendly mm -hmm. still. And 38 was Disney Channel. That was obviously acceptable. Anything on Disney right. Channel, parents had no problem. That's super sanitized. 
But then in between those two was 37, and that was Cartoon Network. And Cartoon Network was the edgy one, where, like, some things that are on that channel my mom was okay with me watching, but other stuff, I would get looks and be asked to change the channel if she walked in on me watching. Because they were putting ah. up a little bit more edgy, crass humor, like Ed, Ed, and Eddie, Encourage the Cowardly Dog. The animation style was weirder. I think she just saw it as, like, a little more grotesque and strange. Then, then you uh -huh. had stuff like Toonami. Do you know about Toonami? Is that a, if I say that word, does that mean anything to you? I've heard of Toonami. Okay. Um, it came up in our episode about One Piece. So from uh, what I know, it's a it's was kind of like the action anime block. Right? Exactly, it was the anime block. And Samurai Jack was always presented within the Toonami block because mm. I think of a little bit of kind of casual racism of like, well, it's a samurai, so we'll put it with the Japanese animation. But maybe if it's thematically. And also, I think it was just a bit more violent and a bit more intense and a bit more maybe slightly older in its in how at least the advertiser saw it as pitching. So mm -hmm. um, actually, I think for a long time, I assumed he was a Japanese animator because he was presented oh. to me with. And again, this is I was not exposed to a lot of different cultures. So when I see a name like Gendy Tartakovsky, I don't really know that that's Russian and not Japanese to my very young brain at the time. I think I just kind of lumped it in with those other Japanese anime that I was watching, right. like Zoids and Yu-Gi-Oh! and stuff like that. And I was yeah, just like, oh, it's it... a different style, different creator. It's in the Toonami block. I think it's Japanese. And then I think I learned over time that it was more American and not Japanese at all. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was also... Uh, I was obsessed with cartoons as a kid, television cartoons. I loved Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, like you said. And I loved uh, Dexter's Laboratory. That was mm -hmm. one of my favorites as a kid. And that is basically Tartakovsky's first uh, kind of breakthrough show. He was 25 years old at the time only, which is kind of crazy to think about. But um, he was coming out of CalArts and... Cartoon Network, this was the early 90s, they were trying to establish themselves as a sort of uh, home for original cartoons. The 90s was this big boom of cartoons on television, and they were basically asking all kinds of animators to like do little pilots and see if they would work. And so Tartakovsky did a pilot for Dexter's Lab, and it worked. They turned it into a series, and kind of that's how it all started. Did you watch this as a kid? I did. It was a little more sporadic, Dexter's Lab. It wasn't one I think I've seen every episode of, but it was often on when we were just turning on that channel. Um, and it was extremely popular among like kids at school. I remember that. I remember people quoting lines and trying to do the voices, um, trying to copy Dee Dee and Dexter's voices especially. Um, Mandark was a constant reference people were making, doing his laugh. Um, mm -hmm. so it was very much seeped into pop culture around me. So I think I actually gained, I learned a lot about the show from just being around it as much as watching it at that age. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I loved Dexter's Lab and I still do. Mm -hmm. I still think it's a great show. It was hugely influential for me in ways that I didn't even register until lately. You know, like did you, I, on the rewatch for this episode, did you notice any specifics or any moments you've cribbed from or copied from? Yeah, I mean, you know, Wormholes is a web series that I uh, co-created and co-star in. And yeah, thank you. So people can check that out. I'll put a link in the description, I guess. Good. <laughs> but um, uh, 
thinking back on Dexter's Laboratory for this, I was like, oh, so much of like my style of humor, the kinds of jokes that I would bring to wormholes, the kind of stories that I would bring to wormholes come from Dexter's Lab. Like mm. there's this wormholes episode with Vichyssoise, the French guy who speaks in, in gibberish French. That is basically me reworking the Dexter's Lab episode <laughs> where Dexter learns French and he can only say omelette du fromage. <laughs> That's that's basically what that is. Yes, like, so it's, it's such it, a it really is a line. part of my. So what DNA. do you think? Um, I want to dig in. We're trying to kind of cover his whole career a little bit and touch on these things. So I want to do a little bit of dig into the style of each one and what we like. What do you yeah. think? In addition to maybe a, a direct reference like that, what do you think it is about that show that sticks in the mind so that you would use it as a creative influence without even remembering it on purpose? Because to me something I've noticed about his style across all his projects is that every image is so graphically clear and readable and iconic and every moment is so built up to and paid off so perfectly that I remember so much and it just seeps in as like a subconscious feeling like Dexter's mm -hmm. lab has a feeling to me that show has the house has an energy it has a smell it has a, uh, a, a color and a way that the world works with a certain logic only within that space and it feels comfortable. And it, I think when you say that it's inspiring you subconsciously, it makes sense to me. I wonder what, if any of that registered to you or what was it that was like, this is why this thing was a bedrock for me. Yeah, absolutely. 100% everything that you just said. The Because there were other cartoons on, on Cartoon Network and on other channels, and they didn't uh, make as much of an impact on me. So mm. I think, well, I think on a superficial level, Dexter's lab is just full of cool stuff hmm. and and stuff that 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 I gravitated towards as a kid. You know, it's the show about this little kid who has a secret, who's a secret genius and has a secret <laughs> laboratory in his room. And then his uh, sister, Dee Dee, is kind of like this uh, ditzy type of girl who is like always breaking his experiments um, and, 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 and wrecking havoc. But there's also like Dexter's lab is full of like giant robots, aliens. Um, monsters, in sci-fi, interdimensional stuff, um, superheroes, you know? So it was all that stuff that is, like, really cool. And I think that Elsa Tartakovsky loves all that stuff, as you will see in his later cartoons. And I think in terms of the style, like you were saying, I think that's the... You already have mentioned what I think the key to Tartakovsky's greatness is, which is this the power that he brings to the images and how he's so good at crafting individual images that are memorable and iconic and that convey to you so much about what's going on. In Dexter's lab, I think he... <laughs> I think you might have opened the can of worms here for, for me, at, like the animation for fanatic. Here for to actually um, get to your brain. Perfect. That's the true so, purpose. <laughs> I think in Dexter's lab, what he does, it's the most comedic of all the shows that he's created. Yes. Um, and I think what he does is he mixes the kind of like the 1940s uh, cartoons like Looney Tunes, mm -hmm. Tex Avery, very expressive uh, camera angles and cartoonish uh, emotions and very like, you know, big mm -hmm. uh, movements with the minimalistic style of like 50s and 60s animation because you know he was working on a television budget so yep. it, it, the lines are very flat and very clean but he brings a lot of dynamism to them and he makes the most of them you say it perfectly i think to me i was it was I, I, to, 
other than the his Star Wars projects, which I have rewatched ad nauseum as I have with any Star Wars project, um, I had not revisited any of his stuff at all recently, at least within five or ten years. So to me, what I was shocked at revisiting all this stuff is that there's almost no animation in a lot of these scenes. It's a mostly a pose hero shot, and then he will use what I'll call camera movement and panning around the image and swooping in and like just holding the elements and having the the different animated layers move through space through like you know tracking the digital camera however they, i don't know how they produced it at that time mm -hmm. probably wasn't a digital camera but that is to me what the that uh the power came and then i got me thinking about his editing and the way that you actually are asked to piece what's happening together in your imagination it's very engaging filmmaking to me mm -hmm. because you mm -hmm. see you know dexter bursts in into the lab and he's going to do something cool so it's a low angle shot of him and his shadow is coming at you but then there is no animation the shadow just like grows and fills and fills the screen as he gets closer then you get a shot of Dee Dee looking from the background it's just her eyes and all the only thing that animates is the eyeballs go whoop, over to the side yep. like they do in the opening and you just are then then you see her hand come in from above frame and grab the thing he's working on and pull it up and you're not actually seeing what's happening you're just noticing these highlighted moments that tell the story and you're being asked to kind of piece it together and that's yes. what draws me in at least as an adult yes. and that's what drew oh me my in God. Trevor, you're giving me goosebumps talking about this. I'm so excited. I love that. So, yeah, I love I was that shit. It's at like... how little animation there was in that show. It was, and but yet how dynam dy dynamic it was. You nailed it. And minimalistic and economic, right? Because you, he's working with limited budgets because TV animation, you know, you have to make a lot of episodes. Animation is expensive. He wants so to do big things making... like robots and you know yeah. massive effects. And he's making every cent count, like every movement is money. So he's so he is not wasting any time. He's like, you know, everything he's saying something with every movement and all of that, like focusing on the poses and minimizing the, the movement to its extreme. That is kind of a technique that has been used very well by Japanese animators. Mm -hmm who are also working with. So I think he has an influence of that for sure. There's an episode of Dexter's Lab, which is basically a parody of Speed Racer, the anime from the 60s. I rewatched your recommendation. Yeah, I watched that one. So I think we can sense that he has these influences that he's taken in and he's doing all this stuff that makes him stand out, like you were saying, from the other cartoons at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe in Dexter's lab, uh, not as much. And it, it's a little uh, tough to say because I think in the 90s, it was a great time for television cartoons and there was a lot of variety. Like, you know, yes. just the cartoons that you mentioned, there was a lot of really cool stuff happening in, in all different channels um, with different styles. But I think as he goes into his career, and we'll talk about this in a bit, it becomes clearer and clearer what his personal style is. Mm -hmm. After Dexter's Lab, he works on the Powerpuff Girls, which he did mm -hmm. not create, but he was a producer and the director of it. And again, we don't have to talk too much about it. I also love the Powerpuff Girls, I think, because I could see the connection, even if I wasn't, you know, I was a kid, so I wasn't fully aware that it was the same guy yeah. that was directing it. But you can tell in the way that the Powerpuff Girls do their action scenes, especially. I agree. It's that. You know, the iconic Powerpuff Girls action move is you see the Powerpuff Girl 
punching a monster that's in the background and the image moves a little bit in slow motion that's right that's very and anime inspired you get the color and depending on which powerpuff girl it is the background is like streaks of pink or blue or green exactly and you're punching the monkey and it's just one drawing you do one drawing really well and you spend the time to get the angle just right and then you animate the perspective on that drawing and we think of it as this great action moment but it's not it's a still image it's he's he's not yeah. a, he understands that editing and camera movement and pacing can tell the story in still images which lets yeah. him I think have what feels like you know a quote unquote bigger budget in his and format. the suggestion this is that you yes, were talking exactly. about that it's your suggested. mind does the rest it feels also like influenced by comic books as well right like how yep. you see a panel that has a lot of action in it and in your mind you play the animation of how that actually happened Dexter's lab feels like a half comic book half looney tunes cartoon i think it's it kind of feels like as i think we all are in our early artistic efforts we are sort of more directly reproducing our favorite stuff than we think we are until we can look mm -hmm. back on it with some perspective. And I think I, I've seen enough interviews of him saying that it was, yep, superhero comics, Looney Tunes, those are my main influences of American culture. Um, so he's then to get kind of, to bring in the theme of the show a little bit, I'm gonna drag it in whenever we can. Um, yeah, great. He's, yes, taking those two very American influences, Looney Tunes and American superhero comics, but mm -hmm. he is, saying that the best way to bring them to screen involves bringing in influences from Japanese animation and from other sources. And I'm going to let them be stylized in a way that feels singular and like another influence on the craft. I'm not just going to make this generation's Looney Tunes. I'm going to, you know, make it, uh, I'm going to make it more dynamic. To me, I think the, the, the transition from Dexter's Lab into the future of more action-focused storytelling from him is that the scripts feel a little bit like a Looney Tunes where they're very, every episode has its own premise and there's very comedic writing and exaggerated voice performances and visual gags. But mm -hmm. there is not the kind of action filmmaking in Looney Tunes and there's not the kind of camera movement in Looney Tunes. The camera in Looney Tunes only ever like pans left and right for comedic effect. But even the action scenes in the Roadrunner Coyote cartoons are mostly wide shots and the comedy plays out because of where the frame is and how the characters are, you know, in and out of it. And with Dexter's Lab, it's like swooping and moving and there's big low angles and high angles and exaggerated faces. And I think it pushes mm -hmm. that, there's an action filmmaking to his comedy that makes it heightened and really memorable. And that's to me the key of like, ah, he's, he's gearing up to do Samurai Jack, you know? <laughs> yeah, so you're keying us up perfectly for the big, what I consider to be the big moment in his career and the, I guess, the main course for our mm -hmm. conversation, mm -hmm. which is the years between 2001 and 2005 when he's working on Samurai Jack and Star Wars The Clone Wars. And we will yep. talk a little bit more about those specifically, but you have just set the table for something that I wanted to bring up, which is a video that I saw on YouTube called... Gendy Tartakovsky reading the action. I don't know if you've seen this video. Um, I will link it in the in the show description. It's a great video essay. And in it, it begins with uh, none other than Jack Jones, mm -hmm. the most famous mm -hmm. Looney Tunes director, talking about the importance of timing in animation. Yes. And he talks about timing and he talks about readability, which is the clarity of everything that's happening on screen, that it's very important in animation because um, 
the movement is manufactured and timed by the person who's doing it. When you do, you know, in live action, uh, an actor is moving and mm -hmm. you hope for the best. But in animation, you are taking every single frame you're drawing. So you know exactly what the timing is going to be mm -hmm. from before you start drawing or you know what the timing should be. Mm -hmm. And this is what makes Tartakovsky a master of the form is the way in he uses timing and he uses anticipation. What you were talking about, the poses and the build-up to the action because mm -hmm. he has very limited resources in terms of money in order to portray this action. So what he does is he has these long moments of anticipation in which you look at a very cool pose. You see, for example, the... Um, let's talk about Samurai Jack. You yeah. see Samurai Jack, he like removes his sword from, from its case and he's standing there. Then you see what he's up against. Maybe it's an army of big giant beetles or something. <laughs> it's often and beetles, then, isn't it? <laughs> and then it comes back to him, and now you see like a close-up on his face. Then mm -hmm. you see a close-up of the beetles. And you these are all images that are not moving that much. Nope, they but don't require you're the going resources. from one to the other, and then you pay it off with a with a beat of action that is very clear. Yep. Which um, is often also abstracted. It's it. The most recent example I could think of that did this was Into the Spider-Verse, where the action is often told through a series of close-ups, and it's not actually cut continuously, where you'll see, like, you're right, you get all this anticipation you describe, and then you see the Beatles' legs extending, showing that they left. Then you see Jack's hand on the sword unsheath it. Then you see mm -hmm. one, two, three cuts of the sword, just like, it was just literally a flash of white on screen cutting through space. And then you cut to the Beatles all fall apart and like on the ground in pieces. And you're like, whoa, that was intense. But again, it's just mostly still images. And he knows how to use that editing and that pace and like boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. And then you feel like something happened. Yeah. And the other thing that he does in terms of readability that I think it's genius that I hadn't realized, but now that I know it makes total sense, mm -hmm. is that he um, takes these moments of specific poses of action, right? Like before and during the punch and then after the punch and in the... in and he extends, he holds on the poses a little longer than you usually would. And he speeds up the movement in between the poses uh, to faster than it usually would. So mm. he is lingering on the action beats, but he's not losing the momentum because he's making it up by speeding the, the, mom the transition from one beat to the next. And that makes the action so memorable because like... What is so exciting about his stuff is that you can the in what makes him a great action director is mm -hmm. that he has these incredible ideas of what looks cool and he highlights it by using timing. Mm -hmm. you know? He, I think, understands that you don't need to present things in movies and TV in visual medium it doesn't need to be literally logically linear. It can be more impactful to actually spend just literally more time looking at the moment when the punch hits and you cut out the rest of it and then in your brain that's what really sticks you, you remember that hit or that sword cut or the jump or the landing or whatever it is because he emphasizes it with more time he gives it more space to be the thing you remember mm -hmm. um i'm curious for you what you make of um how that kind of intersects with his use of violence. I think as we get into Samurai Jack, it's worth talking about how he's often seen mm -hmm. another outsider kind of point of view he gets is, oh, he's one of the American animation creators that's more violent. 
how do you, how does that square when you have these, we're talking about how the violence feels or the action rather feels impactful mm -hmm. and visceral because of these techniques. Do you think that makes it feel more violent? Is it just that he has blood and Americans is cringe at that? Or what is it to you that makes the violent kind of thing be such a part of the discussion of him as a creator? That's interesting. I think he's definitely interested in violence and in action in a way that a lot of the most popular American cartoons are not. In America, we think of cartoons mainly as being for kids and mm -hmm. mainly as being comedic, right? The most popular cartoons, I would say, in American history, at least in recent history, would be, I guess, The Simpsons and SpongeBob, right? So yeah. very comedic, very good. I love them, but very different from like something like Samurai Jack. So Samurai Jack in 2001 comes out and it's a, a show that it's uh, every episode is like 20 minutes long and... There are episodes in which you would go for like seven or eight minutes with zero dialogue. Oh, yeah. That everything plays silently. It's very minimalistic. There is one main character, basically Jack, the samurai who is stuck in the future and trying to go back to his past so he can defeat this evil demon, uh, Aku. Mm -hmm. And in every episode, he gets into a different adventure, right? And there's different characters and... and that allows Tartakovsky to play with different yes. stuff that he wants to do, do different things in every episode. He and needs to feels... be given, sorry, he needs to be given a, a premise. I think the Dexter's Lab succeeds because it's a playground premise. And Samurai Jack's the same thing. He's like, we're in a made up future. So any episode can be anything. Sometimes he's in the sands of the desert fighting ninja beetles. And sometimes he's literally jumping around on space cars, like it's Attack of the Clones. And he's in curse, you know, like, yeah. It can be anything he wants. It's such a fantastic premise he gave himself. Absolutely. It can be anything he wants. And it is built up for action, for him to to tell stories with the images and with the movement and with sound mm -hmm. and with as little dialogue as possible. Because it's all about very simply like fighting an enemy or rescuing, a, you know, a, a helpless person from an from a dangerous beast or a dangerous enemy and things like that which i think he uses to the max when i saw it as a kid i was like i've seen nothing like this before mm -hmm. like, exactly yeah i don't know what your experience was with that his my first interaction with him was the star wars project so i won't get into too much of it till we get there but it is this period we're talking about and yes mm -hmm. it was a just straight up i had never seen anything move like this, look like this, feel like this. Um, and at that time, I had not seen any content like Samurai Jack. I hadn't seen anything that was so abstracted and so imaginative without even, you know, it has a premise, kind of, but not really. Any episode can have a completely different set of rules and logic to the reality. And maybe even like some episodes span what feels like months. Sometimes it feels mm -hmm. like an afternoon that we spent with Jack, you know, and sometimes you don't understand how long it's been since the last episode or does that even matter it's this endless journey and it's all about the moments that he has along the way that mm -hmm. build up and tell the story i think in both the structure of his shows and in the structure of just his individual moments of animation he likes to give a lot of little details and then you process the bigger picture and the bigger feeling and he's not walking you through it with a plot in quite such a way that we're used to, at least with Samurai Jack. Mm -hmm. Since you bring up Star Wars, maybe let's get into it a little bit, because <laughs> um, I I remember being very excited for the Samurai Jack premiere. Mm. And 
I don't know if you if you remember the first episode of Samurai Jack. It kind of tells the story of the kid Samurai Jack as a kid and how he goes from one place to another, training with different masters from all around the world. Speaking and of I foreign invaders, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So that was great because as a, I as a kid was really into history and like different cultures mm. and whatever. So it was great to see like the samurai kid. He went to like africa and he was training in egypt and then he was training with like an african warrior and then he was training in um you know in europe and then he was training in china <laughs> we do have Kung to say Fu. though one of my favorite mm-hmm. things was it's like all these cultural things he's gaining and then when he goes to europe it's literally robin hood <laughs> like, yeah not a real <laughs> yeah. person not a real part of cult but this like kind of folk hero i guess it, was, it made me laugh um, yeah. I, had, I had not seen that episode um, because as a kid, I was only catching what was premiering, and I'd never seen the first episode. So mm-hmm. the, this last week was my first time watching the first episode, and it was—I mean, what a! If you want a one pitch on like this is who this creator is, I think it's the first episode of Samurai Jack, where it's—it has all of his theme, all of his artist statement of like this is what mm-hmm. I care about, this is how I tell stories. I'm okay with having no that whole all that training montage is completely dialogue free. Yep. as he travels it's all across through the images and every yeah. time they travel he spends a good 30 seconds just showing them moving across the screen in their new form of travel with the new culture it's so beautiful and so a statement of purpose on who will be defeated if i can gather mm-hmm. the wisdom of all of this planet and all of these people and it i think it, it actually gives you a good purchase to then read the rest of the show where it's like a random series of adventures jack goes on but you understand the purposes that he's gaining knowledge and learning from each encounter to hopefully one mm-hmm. day achieve his goal of defeating Aku. Yeah. Yeah. So as a kid, I love, I think the episode is, is absolutely beautiful as a kid. I loved it. But then the, the episode ends with him being stuck in the future. And as a kid who was into all these cultures and history, I was like, Oh, F this, this is not what I wanted. I wanted to see all these people from all over the world. And now I'm going to be seeing this other thing. No, thank you. So I kind of like brushed it aside and didn't go back to Samurai Jack. But then the Star Wars cartoons came out and it was seeing those cartoons and realizing how cool they were (laughs) and he that he was behind them that I went back to Samurai Jack. And that's when my Samurai Jack love grew um, because of realizing how incredible he was at doing all these action stuff that I think he does really, really well in the Star Wars cartoons. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what these cartoons were? I'd love to. Um, This was what I would consider the first time that anyone other than George Lucas was given creative control to create something for the screen for Star Wars. Um, Up at at 2005, when the final of his two seasons of the show uh, premiered was when Revenge of the Sith came out, episode three, which at the time was going to be the last Star Wars movie. George Lucas was done. There would be no more. Uh, you know, that didn't go mm-hmm. so well as we <laughs> as we learned. <laughs> but uh, at the time, it was kind of a moment of transition. We were coming into a, the end of an era of Star Wars. And while there had been a lot of books and comics that were given more creative freedom and did some fascinating stuff, we had not yet seen any other on-screen Star Wars other than the live-action movies and the 80s live action Ewok movies and droid series, which were Mm -hmm. definitely unique, but of a previous time. Mm -hmm. So for me, growing up 2005, I'm a young kid. The prequels are doing it for me. I have none of the problems that the adults have with them. I love them. And you get this Clone Wars show. And since 1977, people are like, what's the Clone Wars? I want to see Clone Wars stories. 
And George Lucas decides, I'm going to give it not to someone like a Ron Howard type, one of his, you know, kind of protégés grew up in his school of Spielberg and Francis Ford Coppola. He decides, um, bless him, I'm going to give it to this groundbreaking, technically minded, action focused animator. And he's going to do it. And um, the original conceit of the show, and you can see why maybe they went to hire this creator, right, hire Tartakovsky, is that it was originally going to be a series of commercials that aired on Cartoon Network. They wanted there to be just like little action beats of storytelling in a Clone Wars battle that would be just long enough to slot into a like 45 second or 60 second commercial. And so while you're watching Cartoon Network, you're just every once in a while getting a little Clone Wars action scene that's exciting mm-hmm. and fun and cool and then as they developed it they realized no we do want some story in there we're gonna have them be longer episodes and that's why that first season is a bit more choppy and the second season actually tells a more cohesive story almost like an animated movie rather than these mm-hmm. little tiny vignettes um so anyway they brought him on to do this animated show and it followed his style he didn't really bend his style to fit star wars he took the Star Wars iconography and characters and brought it into his world. The action is Gendy Tarkovsky action, where it's all told in close-ups and graphic images and beautiful camera work. He brings his I-can-do-anything-with-this-playground attitude to it, where you get scenes like Obi-Wan Kenobi in, like, in a medieval jousting competition with mm-hmm. battle droids on speeders, and they have lances like they're in King Arthur's court or something, and they're fighting tanks mm-hmm. with lances. You get gladiator arenas with all the star wars characters he just like didn't hold back and threw it up on the screen and then young trevor gets this in his eyeballs and is like oh maybe for the first time i know what it's like to have a different artist take on a property that i like i can see now how a creator has creative vision and can change something because i got a for the maybe the first time a direct comparison that i cared about between yeah george lucas star wars and this guy's star wars and it's a different animal mm-hmm. So, and yeah. it's crazy because George Lucas made made the baffling decision when he was making the prequels to end the episode two Attack of the Clones with the beginning of the war mm-hmm. and to start episode three with the end of the war. So the whole <laughs> war is a big ellipsis. And that's what we've been waiting for. And there's no war in the movies. But the this cartoon kind of scratched that itch. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that, I don't know, I couldn't confirm this on the internet, but I've heard this from... People say before that it was a cartoon, like you said, a commercial because they were yep. making action figures and they were like, we want to sell more action figures. Yep. We should maybe we can do some commercials, some little. And Kenny Tartakovsky gets the assignment and he said, you know, he just goes with it. Yep. He's like, oh, <laughs> you, you're going to let me make some uh, Star Wars cartoons. Great. I'm going to make something <laughs> really awesome. And, he says, and it's incredible. He says like, um, he says, OK, I can only do a little vignette thing i don't have time for like a full story so what if mace windu just like boxer punched droids to death for five minutes and you just watched him run around and punch robot droids so hard with the sound of like slot machines going off Mm -hmm. and cash register chores opening and it's the coolest maybe that character's ever been in any medium of any form he absolutely he gets and this is where i think you see it's not just in the animation direction in terms of I can handle action. It's I understand why I'm showing you the action in the first place. He gets the character so deeply right. I see this coming from his love of Looney Tunes and how those characters are honed to a perfect character point of like, you know, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck 
every movement they make, every facial expression is perfectly honed to tell you who the character is. And I think he mm -hmm. does the same with Star Wars characters. You get a sense for who even a kind of side character played with no real character or writing by, in, like Mace Windu gets personality here and depth and you get a I think you get a better sense of Obi-Wan and Anakin's bitterness and growth as young teacher, you know, teacher and young student to more brothers. I think you get a more honest sense of that drama here than you do in the movies. He, hmm. I think he gets the characters in and out of the action in a way that very few Star Wars creators really do. It's absolutely the coolest that any of the characters in the prequels have ever been, in my opinion. <laughs> like this oh, is probably my favorite piece of Star Wars anything. Um, and it's because everything is so freaking cool. Like Kit Fisto <laughs> yeah. in, in Attack of the Clones has a little moment that is very memorable that me as a kid, I remembered him. And I was like, oh, that's a cool dude, this Kit his Fisto smile, guy. smile, right? The, he does that little smile. Yeah, he smiles and something. But then you see the, the what Tartakovsky does with him. There's a little episode in which he fights in Mon Calamari. So with Admiral Akbar, and he takes off his shirt, goes underwater, yeah. and you see what a Jedi can do underwater. It's amazing. It's so cool. And yes, Mace Windu, the Mace Windu episodes, I think it's two episodes with Mace yes. Windu fighting this, these droids and this giant machine that Speaking creates earthquakes. Your, your point on anticipation, that's the way, that's how you explain that. It's like the build up to that big punch earthquake machine. It's like, and it hits the ground and it goes off. Oh, you'd never forget that stuff. <laughs> that Those are my favorite of all the Clone Wars episodes, the Mace Windu ones, because they're so cool and they make Mace Windu be so cool. Because yep. you hear in the movies, like, he's the master, he's so good at fighting, he's, he's so powerful, but you never see it. And then he's, like, fighting, like you said, robots with his bare arms. <laughs> it's incredible. And I also, also, again, you talk about getting character right. I think Yoda fights in this one in a way that is much more appropriate to his character than the flippy, dippy Tasmanian devil thing he does in the movies. And I like, I don't, uh, I don't hate that stuff. No, but, I like I mean, that he, too. He does, he does that a little bit here, but what he, what Tartakovsky gives him is moments of just complete force mastery. Like in the invasion of Coruscant, he just like does a shot where he like claps his hands above his head and two entire spaceships just crash into each other over the city. And he mm -hmm. can, he can take an entire, tank division and just put it back in the ship with the force and then make it take off and leave and to me it's right. like you just get the character you get that yeah he has a lightsaber but we want to see yoda do stuff like that and he never got to do stuff like that in the movies he never got to be like i can move a mountain with the force because i'm yoda mm -hmm. you know i think he yeah. he heightens everything like you say they're the most cool they've ever been anakin is even more brooding and emo and angsty in this than he somehow is as hayden christensen because he's got like tattoos on his chest and he's screaming all the time and it's like beating enemies by just hitting them harder with his lightsaber it's very yeah. and and visceral because, and works for me because he ha he uh the storytelling is in the action he is so good at conveying story through movement and, and action beats i almost feel like george lucas made a mistake at least for me and my personal journey with Star Wars by giving the series to Tartakovsky because mm. I was all in on Star Wars, episode one, episode two, obsessed. Then he does the Clone Wars and he sets me up for an episode three that was never going to be on this mm. level. Mm -hmm. You know, like Tartakovsky almost makes too good of a job. He makes too good of a job of making General Grievous <laughs> be great because yeah. he's awesome in the cartoons and he's so lame in the movie. It's a different character almost entirely. The He gets... 
he knows how to, he knows how to give a character a beat of action that you never forget and like the, he tells you who he is um yeah that that episode when grievous first comes up and he like beats seven jedis in a row yeah. it's incredible and it's an escalation He's so cool imagine if that had been in the movie and you're like wow in the big finale there's a villain that they actually can't take down you don't get that sense you know no um yeah i think he i don't know he also brings it in uh i think he's a little bit also okay doing a slightly more adult like romance vibes than some other cartoons it's not quite as iconic to his style i think as the action but in his Mm -hmm. writing because he's often a writer on these projects or a co-writer on his projects and i think he allows it to to get a little bit there there's a great samurai jack episode i rewatched where this lady samurai shows up and they journey together to try to find this gem that might fix their 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 past problems with mm-hmm. aku and it's this kind of flirty romantic tension femme fatale vibe he's playing with and you get to the end and it's a twist of course and uh aku mm-hmm. was the ba- aku was the woman the whole time and uh it's great right. but he does that here too where like i think anakin and padme are sexier here than they've ever been in the movies they like have these moments of kind of heated looking at each other as he's about to go mm-hmm. off to war and he puts his hand up and her, oh my her chest is it, heaving and the music is playing and not a word just not a, a word. just a hand just a hand and it's his robot and hand it's and like, he's like yeah. i'm going off to fight more battles i may come back even less of a man than i am now but i have yeah. to go and this is the tragedy of this period of star wars he gets that it's a tragic period in in the movies and in the story and he, I mm-hmm. think he brings that scope. He, we haven't talked also, we talk about the posing and the clarity of the images. He can do scale like nobody's business. You understand how mm. massive some of the enemies in Samurai Jack are, how big Dexter's lab is, how like the ceiling goes on to infinity, you know, and his, yeah. his creations are so big. And in Star Wars, that's part of Grievous feels 20 feet tall and the spaceships feel massive and the emotions mm-hmm. are huge because everything is so big. I don't know. I can go on forever about the Star Wars. His Star Wars is unlike anything we've ever seen. And I think maybe at the time that it was given the most creative freedom outside of either Lucas or Disney's control, depending on what area mm-hmm. you're in. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 these cartoons uh, are not available in Disney Plus, And I think they have been deemed to not be canon, right? So they have been kind of like tossed aside a little bit. I, I think I'll pull back on Toss Aside a little bit, partly because they actually are going to come to Disney Plus. They've actually oh, decided great. they're going to do a, that they're going to put it under some kind of banner, like like legacy stories or something. And they're going to release the, the Ewok movies and the, all the old stuff and the Tartakovsky series. Stuff that is like, they don't, I think they want to put it out there and they know people love it, but they want to make sure it's not considered part of the ongoing story that they're trying to keep tight mm-hmm. control over. To me, the way they did it with the Star Wars stuff that they cast aside when Disney bought it is like, if nothing we make contradicts it, you can still consider it canon. Like, I still consider that Mace Windu had that battle on that field because it, <laughs> there's no reason why that didn't happen in the movies. Yeah, because he, this coolest because, thing is ever done. Exactly. And like, I see some of those conversations with Obi-Wan and Anakin and Anakin and Padme as being a true part of my understanding of their character journey, even though the series isn't canon. So, yeah, they didn't. What basically happened was Lucas took, I think, the desire to explore the Clone Wars that great period of time, like you say, that everyone wants that he didn't explore in the movies. He Mm -hmm. eventually goes on and explores that through a really 
very different and quite lovely CGI animated show that went on for several seasons right. that he was directly involved with and did character work and writing on. Um, That's and right. that show takes a while to find its legs and I don't think gets to the level of greatness that this one does until the very end, I would say. It finally transcends and becomes its own thing. But mm -hmm. um, he definitely took what, um, I think the excitement that Gendy drove up in people and then went a completely different direction. The early seasons of that Clomer show are absolutely nothing like it in any way. I wouldn't say there's a, it doesn't feel the same, the animation's different, it's a different tone. And it was kind of disappointing at the time, I think. That does not impress you. Then how about this? Your brain is a creative computer. Oh, the answers to life are for you to find. Use your brain as a creative computer and you will see the light. Just a little time, prove them wrong and throw them out the window. You are the one to make it happen. You are the one to make our dreams come true. I guess I'm wondering as we kind of transition maybe toward the later stage career projects, when you mm -hmm. are talking with folks about his projects is this the way that you think you find people talking about him just excited about the action and that's what's memorable uh how do people engage with his stuff how do you think his legacy is holding up these days yeah so it's interesting when i whenever i've brought him up it's been for the most part either uh, sometimes it's someone who has no idea who he is which is understandable um someone who maybe it's not super familiar with the cartoons, but whenever it's someone who has seen Samurai Jack or who knows who he is, they usually go like, oh, that guy is awesome. I love mm -hmm. him. He's great. It is unclear to me whether or not people have been watching his later projects. Mm -hmm. um, and right, because in 2000, around 2005, 2006, when Star Wars and Samurai Jack were done, there was this thing of like, okay, so what is he going to do next? It seemed for a long time that he was going to do a Samurai Jack movie to wrap up that yep. series. And that ended up not happening. Um, he, did a, he did wrap up the series in a fifth season of Samurai Jack that went direct to Adult Swim instead of Cartoon Network proper, um, which was a little bit more adult. And it was, it was pretty good. It, definitely, you could see his style in it. Mm -hmm. And... And, you know, the action was incredible. The story, I think some people didn't like it as much. You know, it's always tricky when you're wrapping up a show that people love so much. Mm -hmm. um, and a show that, like, from the beginning, first episode has a end point of, like, his goal is to get back and save his mm -hmm. people. So that's a lot of buildup, you know, from the very first episode. It everyone has something in their mind of what that's going to be. And then you return yeah. to it. And of course, you're an older person. So it's a more sad show. It's darker. It's more. And it's years later. Troubling. People have yeah. been waiting for so long for it to come back. So yeah. It so that meta, was pretty like tough. All of these do. Yeah. yeah. And in the meantime, between that, so between Samurai Jack ending the original run and the Samurai Jack wrap up in the around 2017 or 18, I think, mm -hmm. um, he was kind of a little bit in the wilderness and he graduates to movies, mm -hmm. to directing movies. He gets hired basically as a 
it was not a project that he started, but he got hired to direct for Sony Sony Pictures Animation's um, Hotel Transylvania, mm-hmm. which feels very much like a run-of-the-mill cartoon for CGI for kids. Adam Sandler voices Dracula, and Dracula runs a hotel, and he, <laughs> you know, has problems with his daughter. Oh, my God, it's the, the, most, the most generic daddy issues. Like, father doesn't yeah. want to let the daughter grow up. It's just, like, it's so boilerplate that, I mean, thank God that Gendy tries a little bit to bring, I, I guess for context, I just watched the first in the series for the first time right before uh, we mm-hmm. did this episode. So I was just like, this is so almost, it was such lazy cliche writing that I was drawn to the animation more. And I was like looking for any little detail he threw me. And I think he tries to sneak in some. I'm curious what you mm-hmm. think. My question for the Hotel Transylvania series is, do you think he can succeed in 3D with the what he we love about his style? Do you think his style translates? Mm-hmm. Because we talk so much about limited motion and stillness and mm-hmm. 3D animation, especially when you're doing it for a big corporation, is antithetical to stillness. Every character needs to be moving at all times and the camera needs to be constantly sweeping and there is no time for these poses and moments of pause. And I wonder if you how much you attribute that to the animation shift or something else. Yeah. So that's a great question. I'm so happy that you asked it. Um, so this is a very frustrating time for me as a Tartakovsky fan. I watch Hotel Transylvania. I can tell that he's just been hired to do this. I can tell that mm-hmm. the Sony Pictures people do not know that they're working with a genius. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, that he's crazy. not being able to... You know, he like you said, he sneaks in some pretty cool character animation and and poses and funny yeah, good you know very cartoonish style i think this is very feels very looney tunes what he does with this right he's going back to those yes. classic tex avery bob clampett cartoons and up. making the characters move like that yeah it, it's, it's doing something different from what he does on television for sure What's very frustrating is that you can tell that he... It seems to be a little bit of like, okay, I will direct a Hotel Transylvania for you guys, and then I, you will let me do what I want to do, right? And they're like, yeah, of course. And then they're like, well, actually, before you do what you want to do, <laughs> won't you do a second Hotel Transylvania? And won't you do a third? Oh, and he's like... Man. And it it really feels like that. By the time you get to the third movie, it is as generic and lame in terms of character, plot, whatever, as always. But you can tell that he's getting a little bit more like... The, the studio doesn't really care. The movie's already made money. So he's doing something, some really great animation and some really, really cutting edge stuff for CGI animation. He is incorporating in a very comedic, more so than action-y way, the, the use of his posing and, mm-hmm. and the interstitials and the anticipation between them and really pushing that to the max. He removes the... Um, what do you call that? The motion blur that comes with CG animation. Yes. So there is no motion blur and the movements are much clearer and they're much more comedic. And he's really doing something there. But of course, he's working in a, in a medium and in a for a project that he doesn't have the passion behind, you know? So I was so watching I'm... Hotel Transylvania 3 last night and the first 10 minutes, I texted you saying, yo, this is good. <laughs> did, yeah. And it was. Because it opens really great. And I was like, oh, he's doing so many cool things. And then, of course, as the movie goes on, it's mm-hmm. like a 90-minute movie. And I started to get more and more, you know, yeah. I was impatient actually, with it. I'm Googling as you were talking, just out of curiosity. Because I am struck with that we talk about him as a visual creator foremost. But he often, like I said, co-writes on these projects. And I think 
one of the things that stood out when I was watching this all as a considering his work and, and checking in on every one of his projects, at least watching a little bit, Hotel Transylvania is by far the worst script he's ever done. Those movies, They're, the writing is not good. Mm -hmm. The storytelling is not interesting. The characters are not that good. He makes them visually interesting, but they're not on the page interesting. And you look at the script. No. The first one is written by five different people. The second one is written by someone and Adam Sandler. And so mm -hmm. it's like, of course, he doesn't have the connection. And maybe some of his character work isn't quite as memorable because you ha what is the pose that you can have that shows a dad who doesn't want his girl to go out and be a woman because he's like super old school patriarchal? Like, what is exactly. the action pose? What is the beat you can come up with as a brilliant genius visual creator to sell that? <laughs> there isn't a good story to support his style here. Um, and then actually, interestingly, he does have a writing credit on the third one. So I wonder if what you're saying is true. He was able to kind of get more control over some of those sequences <laughs> and get a little more creative control there. There's some very funny, very fun sequences in the third movie, sure. I will say. Um, also, during this time, he tries to make a CGI Popeye movie for Sony that what doesn't a, take. Just anyone interested in that property? Why is that? Well, I, I don't know. Like, do you have any, I am interested in Popeye you are? Okay, because good. it's being okay. made by Gandhi Tartakovsky. <laughs> ah, number one. And I, but also, I do love the Popeye cartoons from the 30s. I mean, okay. but yeah, but kids don't really love Popeye, I don't think, anymore. Um, he was hugely popular back in the day, but oh, now... I'm not, not dissing anyone's... But I think it's more so that you can tell that he has a a love for classic cartoons of that period and that his mm. work on CG, I think it's really is trying to go back to that style of animation, doing something different from the TV stuff, doing something that's much more rubbery, that it's three dimensional. Mm. And Popeye is an action cartoon in a lot of ways. It's sure. about fighting, you know? And so it's about I, exaggerated proportions and unusual characters. Yeah. And yeah. And and the original Fleischer cartoons with Popeye from the 30s, they are very um, surreal in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, you can see an animation test that he did for his Popeye cartoon on YouTube. I will link to it also in the show notes. Please do. I'd um, love to see it. It's very interesting. This um, is a 3D animation that he's working. It is a 3D animation, okay. and it and it's yeah. I think it was in between the second and third Transylvanias that mm. he was working on this, and of course that didn't take. Yeah. And he never really got to make the movie that he that was his passion project, probably because the studio was a little scared with his ideas and thought, you know, will the kids care about this? But, I mean, the kids will watch anything. This is like a Tom and Jerry movie on HBO Max. There was a, the Smurfs, you know? Yeah, like, the Smurfs movies, or the Chipmunks movies. Chipmunks, yeah. Put, you, you just put it in front of the kids. Kids will watch whatever garbage. I watched whatever garbage when I was a kid. I, I didn't care. That is a great... I think something we should remember more often is that kids will watch anything, so just put good stuff in front of them. Don't think you have to dumb yeah. it down for them or they won't watch it. So, you know, they'll watch anything. Just it can't be boring. It has to look cool. Like he understood that you can show a kid a wordless samurai cartoon with a lot of weight and culture and importance. If it's visually exciting to watch, they'll sit down and watch the colors change for 30 minutes, you know? <laughs> like Yeah, exactly. And you can then you can teach them things and feed it this good good culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, right. So after this Transylvania excursion, he mm. comes back for Samurai Jack season five. And then he does a right now. Basically, this show came out in 2018, the first 19. season of Primal 19. Oh, so it's even more recent than I thought. Yeah, very recent. Um, 
The show is called Primal. It is about a caveman and a dinosaur. And it is from the get-go and by choice, a totally wordless cartoon. Mm -hmm. And a very violent one also. I think it it's like he goes back to the... Right, I'm gonna go full on, you know, wordless early Looney Tunes cartoons, but it's just the tragic version. It's the really dark, sad version. The first episode of Primal that um, I guess without spoiling, I will say, establishes why the two main characters, the caveman and the T-Rex, have a reason to bond and like become kind of brothers in survival. And it is an incredibly dark, brutal episode of television. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was, it's it's definitely a like, you know, not for kids. Tartakovsky, I think he's not trying to appeal to necessarily, although you could obviously watch it as a kid. And it's just as clear and um, easy to follow and connect with in the storytelling. I think he's not trying at all to to appeal to those kind of stories. It's a story about no. the family and parents and survival and the cruelty of the world, but also the beauty and kind of the random acts of violence and love that we see. What do you think about Fourth Primal? How does it does it connect with the rest of the stuff to you? Does it feel like a new evolution in his storytelling um, in terms of like so, what it's about and how you feel about it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it is, um, first of all, I think it is him going even more into the animation style and, and stuff that he likes, right? After having to do these movies and, you know, he loves looney tunes so he had fun with that but he coming back to jack and then doing primal going back to the silent action to yes. also to be able to do action that is more violent right because primal was made for adult swim and it had no not like samurai jack that was once for kids this was explicitly going to be a more adult show and it was going to be violent and there's blood in it <laughs> and it is darker and it is like, you know, it is as good in terms of animation and, and his technique. He's a yes. virtuoso, you know, so you <laughs> can see that in, in this in this show. And I, but as a fan, I still feel like I want. I guess Samurai Jack at this point is his masterpiece, but I do wonder if he has a, a second masterpiece in him that he I would love to see him come to something that that takes him to to the extreme of everything that he wants to do. But I don't know if he's going to be given the budget and mm. the resources to do that. Did you feel Primal felt constrained in that way? Like he was forced into a smaller story maybe than you like to see him play with? I don't know about constraint in that sense. I think Primal, the thing is that I think, okay, here's the thing. I think <laughs> on a TV budget, mm. he has done everything that he can do in that medium in that scale on that budget so primal uh, it is it is more it is more of the great stuff that he's done but it's not like i would love him to be given a movie budget yes. to do something that he actually wants to do to experiment with what he you know like his dream project i'd love him to get uh, to me i think watching clone wars and uh, samurai jack back to back especially those episodes from the same period those same couple years to me, Clone Wars is much higher budget. You can tell there's a lot more animation going on. It's uh, He still, mm -hmm. I think, retains his style that we love, but there's just more. He can do a little bit more. I would love to, I agree, to see him get that kind of budget for a full feature. That that second season of Clone Wars feels a little bit like a one-hour animated movie. It kind of follows the invasion mm -hmm. of Coruscant and Anakin goes on this kind of spirit quest thing. Um, 
and it's not anything amazing in terms of story, but that was like my only really time I've sensed him not having to work under the Hotel Transylvania umbrella, trying to grasp at like what a feature would look like with like continuing story and plot structure. Mm-hmm. I would kill for that to, to see him tackle something like that. Um, he needs scope in his stories in a way that Primal has like some kind of <laughs> primal scope of like, it's the beast in all of us and we have to confront our inner animal and all that stuff. But the mm-hmm. stories are pretty small scale. It's just day-to-day survival of these two in a harsh world. Yeah. And there's not really much plot or yeah. mythos brought to it. And they're very good, don't get me wrong. I really love the second episode in particular, which is the one in which they first get together, the caveman and the dinosaur, and and he really explores what it would be like to try to domesticate a dinosaur <laughs> yeah, or does. live with it because they the caveman is trying to survive, but the dinosaur keeps eating everything that he hunts and, and just you know. He's like, we're gonna live together. We need to kill this together. And yeah, it is like house training your T Rex, but the T Rex yeah. is like six <laughs> times taller than him. It can kill him in any number of ways at any time. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it, it really has a like comedic premise and a violent action premise nicely rolled into one in that episode. Yeah, and and the episodes are great, but yes, exactly. I just think that if it was up to me, I would I would give him money to do whatever he wanted, as much money as he as he wants. Yeah. You know, to me he's one of the great filmmakers working today, you know? Like he's mm-hmm. one of the best action filmmakers around. I agree. Like, you know? I so. think you 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 said early on in the episode that because of a limited budget and the TV scope, you're forced to kind of get down to just the essentials. And I think that's a kind of action filmmaking that you're forced into an in animation that most live action mm-hmm. folks these days do not have the discipline or the creativity or the control to achieve. It's something that reminds me of, um, you actually just mentioned in your bonus episode with uh, Chris Mello about Justice League that you were reminded in some of Zack Snyder's, you know, for free compositions of some of these also four three action compositions from Gendy Tartakovsky. And I think that's a very fair comparison that Snyder, at least in this longer cut, understands the basic geography and posing and iconography that builds up a memorable action scene. Um, I think that you just don't see that in live action much. Maybe Mad Max Free Road is the current kind of reigning champ of clarity and um, memorable, engaging live action action, but you don't mm-hmm. beat animation for that essentialness where every shot is literally the only what you need to see because we don't have any money to do anything else. You know, like I have to get it yeah. all in one image. And there's that kind of early excitement and desperation you feel in early Samurai Jack and Dexter's Lab of like, I'm new to the scene. I'm a young kid. I've studied the masters. I want to beat them. I'm ready to one up their game. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to throw it all at you. Every episode is a new setting. Every episode is a new style. And then you get into later Jack and Primal. And it's like, no, this is a more contained story. I'm not trying to throw everything at the wall. I'm trying to take time with two characters and wordlessly just explore what it means. There's a lot of just shots of them like looking back and forth at each other, you know, close-ups of eyes. Mm-hmm. The, the, mm-hmm. He uses an extreme close-up of one T-Rex eye a lot for different emotions. And he gets a lot of mileage out of animating the performance out of this very close shot of one t-rex eye and it's little mm-hmm. moments like that where I'm like, you're doing something different here you are actually still using your posing and iconography but not for comedy and not for action but for like just soft human drama and i don't know i i don't think it quite elevates and it doesn't feel like a leap forward for him and a new vision in animation the way i want him to give us like you say but it does feel like he's 
at least stretching in some of his creativity and i want to see him be given a project to really explore that stuff in yeah i definitely will be there for whatever he does next will he ever get the blank check project (laughs) that i want him to get i don't know only time will tell i guess i don't know we can hope all right well i think that pretty much wraps it up on this episode Trevor, is there anything that you would like to tell to the listeners about where to find you? Or Yeah, um, I think you can find me at Trevor Wallace, Trevor underscore Wallace, I think it is, on Letterboxd, which is, for this podcast, I think what I'll plug, because it's movie geeks talking about geeky movie stuff. And <laughs> I'm a fan of that site as a pretty happy place to should talk about movies with friends. So if you want to hear anything more about what I have to say about media, I would go there. And then I would also check out RadicalRhinoceros.com where you can see a trailer for the new horror film that I've made with a bunch of friends that are friends of yours and mine. Um, Carrado plays a character in this horror movie called Cram that we're releasing soon. He's extremely good in it. He's both funny Um. and has action moments as we've (laughs) discussed in Tarnikovsky. And you can judge our action uh, next to him. Totally. That's what I want. <laughs> Great. So yeah, Radical Rhinoceros. Check out the, the trailer for Cram. We're very excited to share it with people soon. Yes, I'm very excited as well. Thank you so much for being on the show, Trevor. Thank you, Carrado. Thank you for letting me talk about Star Wars on a podcast. That's a bucket list for me, for sure. <laughs> I'm glad. So uh, a dream come true. I appreciate it. And that's our show. Thanks again to Trevor for coming on to talk about the incredible Gendy Tartakovsky. Do you have questions or comments about the show? Let me know. You can message me on Twitter at CocoHitsNY or at any of the links in the show description. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find more listeners. But more importantly, why don't you tell someone about it? After all, word of mouth is the best way to support an independent creative endeavor such as this one. Thanks again for listening, and make sure to come back next week when we'll be doing something a little bit different. Stay tuned to hear some tunes. Speaking of tunes, if you listen to the music that's playing right now, you'll be rewarded with a little extra Trevor Wallace. So, Trevor, why don't you tell me about one of your favorite books when you were a kid? Uh, I was a devout reader of the book series, uh, I guess you call them the Redwall books, growing up by Brian Jake, or Brian Jacques, I guess you would say. He's Scottish. Um, They are a book series that I guess you would call fantasy, and they're... I think targeted for kids in the way that like a Lord of the Rings perhaps is approachable to kids, but I think they're also very approachable to adults. And the hook is it is a red ball is an abbey, a fortified stronghold in the forest where all of the lovely woodland animals live, the mice, the badgers, the rabbits, the squirrels, 
these are the good animals of the forest and they live and they work together in harmony and they learn about the past and they train with swords and it's all very cool. And then the evil rat attacks and the bad guy animals are rats and ferrets and weasels and the nasty ones that humans don't like. And well. they're the pirates <laughs> and they come in and attack the Abbey. And this first book is really a coming of age story about this young mouse who um, has grown up in a time of peace, but has read stories of the great hero, Martin the warrior and his magic sword and the time of uh, establishing the Abbey when the world was more violent and um, when the rats attack, he has to, of course, come of age and take up the sword and become the warrior to save the peaceful land. Mm. And then, if that doesn't hook at you enough, what I love about the series is that it grows beyond it with each book. The next book is a sequel about his son. The next book is a prequel about the Martin Warrior time. The next book is a prequel set hundreds of years before about the finding of this valley that it all takes place in. And then from then on, a book could take place at any period across the timeline. Characters that are given their own book early on become the legends that are uh, that inspire the heroes of future books. You might have a book all about the Marl foxes and why you didn't really see many foxes in the earlier books because they're all a part of the secret magician cult and they use magic. And then you might get an entire book about the badger lords of the volcano Salamandistrun who have armies of rabbits that roam the countryside fighting for good. Hmm. Um, but they have this bloodlust that lets them win in battle, but at a great cost, kind of like the dark side in Star Wars or the One Ring, maybe even in Lord of the Rings. Um, Right. So that's, I'm throwing a lot at you, but that's because it's just like the scope of this series is unlike any other fantasy, especially for kids, fantasy series I've seen, where it's really about this land over the course of generations and different species and cultures that that's what forms the series rather than mm -hmm. characters that continue from book to book. But it is for kids, first and foremost, right? So it's a children's book because it's, it's. I mean, maybe it's not, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it's all like animals. So it it, all talking animals. Yeah. Um, if you definitely, if you look up Redwall art, there's the books had some really beautiful artwork that I think you very quickly get a sense of kind of the, the, the tone of it where the mice are very cute and the rabbits are cute. And a lot of the books are spent talking about the food and talking about the culture and the history it really does feel like he's reaching for some of the tolkien levels hmm. of i can pause this epic story and spend an entire chapter where the mouse learns from the mole about this amazing pie that like anyone who knows the books can tell you the name of this pie it's like turnip and beet root deeper and ever and berry pie or something and it's like he'll spend <laughs> an entire chapter talking about where that comes from and how you make it and what the elderflower cordial tastes like that they serve on the special feast um you learn so about so it sounds like a great yeah. uh, entry book for fantasy stuff right yeah. like it sounds like like you know your gateway is that how you got into is that how it started your love for like fantasy sci-fi you know, all that stuff? I would say it was early on. It was definitely before I picked up Lord of the Rings. Um, mm -hmm. I got to that a few years earlier in elementary school. Um, I think it's, yeah, treated with the kind of, I, I think the author would say it's like a fables and parables kind of approach to telling the story where it's all about there's lessons, there's um, things you're supposed to learn from each book. Each character goes on a very specific journey to teach a very specific thing. Like one of my favorites was a book called Triss about a squirrel who wants to be 
on the open sea, but she's a land animal and not supposed to be. So she teams up with this band of like otter pirates and goes out to sea. Um, and then learns, you know, about leaving home, but still keeping your roots and she can climb up the mast like a tree. That's why she's really good at it. And it's all this kind of very classic, hmm. easy to digest lessons for that. I think makes it approachable for young kids who are drawn in by the whole right. mouse idea. And, you know, it's, it's the, you found an ancient sword. Maybe you're the hero that can save the day kind of arch mythic of storytelling, but then you get all this interesting culture. And what I love about the culture stuff is that, um, in one of your early episodes of this podcast, you talked to AB about the Lord of the Rings use of race and how different people have interpreted different fantasy races, maybe as allegory, maybe as something else. And with this, because they're all animals, you feel that sense of multicultural bonding in the Abbey where the badgers bring their culture and the moles bring their food and they can tunnel under and mm. create a system of tunnels under the Abbey for safety. And the birds can fly up high and the rabbits can run fast. And, you know, there's like the skills and the culture they bring are not based on real world ones. They're based on what would that animal bring as a culture right. if it were sentient and could talk what would the bird the bird people actually you can't speak to them directly they speak this like chitter chatter language and most animals don't engage with the birds because they find it too hard to deal with and um it's only the select few usually the main characters that like find the birds interesting and care to take the time to be patient and learn how to kind of speak their kind of mix of bird song and english language um, so it's just, it, it, it's able to remove itself from the realities of our world and kind of escape some of the, the allegory that makes things feel icky in some fantasy, I think, when you have humans and it's supposed to be more Earth-like. And this escapes and lets you teach those lessons in the more fairy tale way, I think, where you're stepping away from reality. Mm -hmm. What is it? There's something about animals and, and kids and children, right? Yeah. Like So many stories for kids have animals in them and it's very effective and I'm not entirely sure why. Um, I don't know if it's maybe it's a chicken or the egg sort of mm -hmm. thing, which one comes first. But but a lot of the time, like, you know, the Disney Robin Hood, mm -hmm. for example, which is the one where when he's a fox and stuff, mm -hmm. that to me feels like such a children's movie yeah. like that makes me think of childhood just the way that it feels like like playtime like storybook like you know do you think it's that it is inherently a fantastic like an easy to grasp fantasy as a kid all most of us either grow up with pets or at least have friends with pets or see pets on walks like we the animals are around us and if, if you're a child who is very imaginative one of the easiest things to imagine is what if they could talk or what would they do with their life? And mm. maybe it's, it's not hard for a child to see a talking animal and register that as a character I can connect with, you know, humans, or we also, we often talk about how adults don't have that kind of suspension of disbelief that children do where they don't take things too right. critically. So I wonder if it's like part, just an instant grab as like, Oh, look, a cute talking animal. Kids love those. And we just are drawn to it. And then part, they're more able to handle a story told through animals. And maybe that's easier for them to understand than a story told through, like, again, when you get the Robin Hood thing, it is easier maybe to understand that Robin Hood is a fox and the king is a lion and the bad guy is a snake. Maybe that's more clear <laughs> in theme and character than if it's a human that with a crown and a human with a hat and a human with another crown. You know, that's not actually very visually clear right. storytelling. When you get and the Redwall books are like this, where 
part of the the reason why the bad guys feel scary is because they're just bigger animals. A rat is bigger than a mouse, and a weasel is bigger mm. than a squirrel is, you know? And so that just physical reality plays into it, and you can do characters through casting the the, the animal that's playing the character. Um, you're, you can have your bad guy be yeah. a fox if you want a sneaky story. You can have your bad guy be a badger if you want it to be a physically intimidating challenge. And it, it's so mm-hmm. clear and instantly readable for a kid, I think. Yeah, the personality and the character type is externalized almost in a way that um, it's easy for kids to grasp or easier than with just humans. I think that's a great point. That's a sort of big brain take, but mm, I, that's, my, that's my thought for the day. Now, here's something really exciting that I just found out doing a quick Wikipedia for the Redwall yes. books. It says, this is from Wikipedia, so take that with a grain <laughs> of salt. In February 2021, Netflix acquired full adaptation rights to the novel series, a feature film based on the novel Redwall and an animated event series based on the characters Martin the Warrior are in the works for the streaming platform. Patrick McHale, (laughs) creator of Over the Garden Wall, will be writing the film script. If I don't know if you know this about me. I love Over the Garden Wall. Oh, you do. It's not surprising because it's you love slightly off the main path very good animation so (laughs) yeah so uh, people who are listening if you haven't seen over the garden wall which is an animated mini series that is just 10 episodes long so it's like you can watch it in one set because they're very short episodes and it's wonderful it's about this kind of like the two brothers who get lost in the woods and they have to uh interact with a bunch of supernatural scary Mm -hmm creatures it's a great uh halloween watch if you know by the time fall comes around you should remember uh to check out over the garden wall i watch it almost every halloween it's great have you seen it trevor i have seen it yes and to me it is um the reason why i'm excited for this adaptation genuinely is that they found a creator that has a unique style of animation and a unique way of using it to tell stories i think it's a perfect pairing um, with the fantastic elements here and also the kind of, I, I think it's someone who would get the red ball supposed to be cute and funny. And like, you might have episodes with no action that like, uh, I think a lesser showrunner might just give into always having fantasy Lord of the Rings battles. Um, kind of the mm-hmm. Hobbit problem of turning what was mostly a cute kid's book into an epic fantasy. There are some epic battles, but most of it is, should be about the food and the Abbey and the kids learning and the animals trying to get along with each other you know so i think uh, that series shows me that that creator can handle that um i don't know the name of the the showrunner off the top of my head patrick McHale. thank you patrick McHale. i'm very yeah so that makes me think it has hope for being a great adaptation looking forward to it i'm excited 